The end of the world is coming. It was predicted thousands of years ago. See ya! A reverse polarity sunspot. Goodbye. There is no such thing as death. Life is only a dream. This is the end. Beautiful friend. All this week, in partnership with our friends at Scientific American, we're talking about the end. Whether it's dwindling glaciers or even how the world itself will end, we're exploring our fascination with the ends of things. Today, the stunning evidence of how Western civilization is changing, some might say eliminating, indigenous cultures. We actually started this conversation with our listeners by asking about your own cultural traditions, the ones that are worth preserving. And for some, it's as simple as passing on recipes. Alex, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, my grandmother recently passed, and most of her recipes are filled with an inaccurate measurements, including enough salt to taste. Well, obviously, my taste is not the same as my grandmother's because my food doesn't taste as good as hers. Tell us which of your cultural and family traditions are worth saving and how you actually preserve them. Call us at 877-8-MY-TAKE. But our next guest says half of the world's 7,000 languages are endangered. And when language fades, whole cultures can fade with them. Could vital ancient wisdom be lost along with these early ways of life? Well, to answer that, we have Wade Davis. He's the explorer in residence for the National Geographic Society and author of The Wayfinders, Why Ancient Wisdom Matters in the Modern World. Good morning, Wade. Good morning, Floyd. In your book, there's a number of cultures that you examine in your book, but tell me first of all about the Indians of Borneo and what happened when they came into conflict with uh, modern culture. Well, one of the things we have is this idea that these um, indigenous cultures, you know, quaint and colorful though they may be, are somehow fated to fade away as if they're, you know, failed attempts at modernity or failed attempts to being us, you know. Somehow they've missed a train of history, and nothing could be further from the truth. In every case, these are dynamic living peoples that are being driven out of existence by identifiable forces. And so if you take, for example, the case of the nomadic Penan of Borneo, one of the most extraordinary peoples of the rainforest, one of the uh, people who have one of the most extraordinary cultures, and yet within a single generation, their way of life has been crushed simply because the forests upon which they depend have been um, devastated by industrial forestry. And so I think that's an important lesson. So when we speak of, say, the 7,000 languages of the world, and that the stunning fact that half are not being taught to children, one of the things that I found haunting Celeste when I looked into this as a social anthropologist, not as a linguist, was a kind of uh, haunting consensus within the linguistic community that this dire statistic, half the language is not being passed on to the next generation, is accepted across the uh, linguistic community. And of course, a language is not just a body vocabulary or grammar. It's a flash of the human spirit. It's the vehicle through which the soul of a culture comes in the material world. Every language is an old-growth forest of the mind. And so to lose half of the, genera- uh, the language of the world in a generation or two is a rather haunting backdrop to our age. I find it fascinating that you, that you talk about the fact that indigenous cultures, uh, like the Penan Indians of Borneo, uh, people seem to view them too, through two extremes of, of the stereotype lens, that there's those who feel like, you know, we need to get them civilized, we need to bring them advanced and into the modern world, and then there's the other extreme where they romanticize them, they see that they do everything right, that they're in one, they're at one with nature, and, and what that seems to be is a, a destructive pattern. Yeah, I mean, I think what, what the 
problem, I mean, the, the wonderful gift that science has given us through the study of genetics is the fact that we now realize without doubt that race is a fiction and that all human societies, all human beings, are cut from the same genetic cloth. And the corollary of that is if we're all cut from the same genetic cloth, we all share the same raw human genius. And how that genius is used is simply a matter of choice and, and kind of cultural orientation. The different cultures of the world are not failed attempts at being us, certainly not failed attempts at being what we call modern. They are, by definition, unique answers to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And when they answer that question, they do so in 7,000 different voices. And so one of the things that the book, The Wayfinders, attempts to do is to suggest that, you know, our way of life, inspired as it may be, is not the paragon of humanity's potential. And that if you, if you define success by other criteria, aside from, say, technological wizardry, you suddenly may see that our way of life is not the ideal way of life, but it's just one way of life. And if you take, for example, a country like the United States, you know, we've achieved wondrous things through our technology. But on the other hand, you know, we consume two-thirds of the world's psychotic, antipsychotic drugs. We have a vast obesity um, epidemic, which is leading the Joint Chiefs of Staff to call it a national security issue. We revere um, marriage, but half our marriages end in divorce. We, we say we love our elders, but only 5% of American homes have grandparents and grandchildren beneath the same roof. You know, we say that we love our children, but we celebrate a slogan 24-7, implying dedication to the workplace at the expense of family, and then we wonder why the average American youth has spent, by the age of 18, two and a half years watching television. Well, let me ask you then, um, are, is there a place, is, is there a country that is perhaps uh, helping to preserve its indigenous cultures that has been successful at this? Is there a place where these ancient cultures are still thriving? Yes, absolutely. You know, one of the wonderful things that has happened is that in the same sense that, you know, if you think about it, less 30 years ago, uh, the environmental movement was, was, uh, was uh, embryonic. You know, just getting people to stop throwing garbage out of a car window was considered a great environmental victory. You know, nobody spoke about climate change. Nobody spoke about biodiversity. In the same sense, we're beginning to appreciate, perhaps a generation later, um, the importance of cultural diversity. And there's, in fact, fantastically exciting stuff going on all around the world. Uh, you know, here in Canada, for example, we, you know, when I grew up, Inuit people in the high Arctic were dismissed as second-class citizens. Now, we have given back to the Inuit people total control of an area of land half the size of Western Europe. It's our new territory, our new homeland called Nunavut. You know, when I say that these cultures are not drifting out of existence but being driven out of existence, that's an optimistic observation because it suggests that if human beings are the agents of cultural destruction, we can be the facilitators of cultural survival. Everywhere we go around, look around the world, even as we have um, tragic cases, as in the example you raised earlier about the Penan and Borneo, there are also extraordinary stories of success where people are realizing that indigenous people don't threaten the integrity of the nation state, they contribute to it. They don't threaten the, uh, the sweep of modernity, they enhance it. So, there so it's is... not about the traditional or the past, it's about how do we want to live. So there is hope in the end, even in the end of things. Wade Davis, National Geographic Explorer in Residence, the man with the best title ever. Thanks so much for joining us.